For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're moving on into the second half of the book of Acts. The first half of this book has been primarily focused on Peter and some action that was taking place in and around the city of Jerusalem. But remember, Jesus told his guys, you guys are going to go to the ends of the earth. And in the second half of the book of Acts, the, the action focuses on the apostle Paul and on his travels all over the Roman Empire. So we're going to have so many maps over the next several weeks of this study. You're not going to believe it. And tonight we're going to start the action in a very influential city, the third largest in the Roman Empire, a city called Antioch, which was located right on the major east-west road that cut through the Roman Empire. And we're going to, we're going to see our, our characters travel several hundred miles before ending up in another city also called Antioch, located on that same road. So let's read Acts eleven nineteen. It says, meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. Yeah, so Luke takes us back to, we're actually picking up at the end of the story that uh, we skipped last week, okay? This is right after the conversion of Cornelius. He narrates that for us. Luke actually rewinds all the way back to Acts chapter 8, where he says, remember when Stephen was killed and the believers were scattered out of Jerusalem? He says, some of these believers went as far as Phoenicia, which is up the coast. Antioch of Syria is further up the coast. It's where our story starts tonight. And also Cyprus, which is an island west of Israel, Jerusalem, Palestine area. So they scattered into those areas. Unfortunately, they continued this racist practice of preaching the word of God only to Jews. We saw they've had a problem with this, going to non-Jews, telling them about Jesus too. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene, okay, Cyrene down in Northern Africa, Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, some of them go to Antioch and they start telling the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know if they heard about the whole business that happened with Antioch and God opening this door to the Gentiles. Apparently, though, they didn't know they weren't supposed to tell non-Jews about Jesus. So they just started doing it. Now, this is the, uh, the city Antioch on the Orontes, Antioch, Syrian Antioch, this is referred to in our Bibles, to distinguish it from all the other Antiochs. This city would have had, some estimates put this at 600,000 inhabitants, the third largest city in the, in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria down in Egypt. This was on a river almost 20 miles from where the river dumped into the Mediterranean. Sizable Jewish population here as well, between 20 and 60,000 Jews here. And this was the largest of 16 Antiochs in this part of the Roman Empire. Yeah, there were a bunch of rulers named Antiochus, and uh, they kept naming cities after themselves. <laughs> so it gets a little confusing. That's how we're going to end in Antioch tonight as well. Well, you can see on our map here, Jerusalem, way down at the bottom of this map, comes all the way up the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, up into what is modern-day Turkey, to the city of Antioch. You can see it circled there up in the northeastern corner. This is actually part of Turkey today, right up against Syria. And so the city of Antioch, some believers went there. So who were the believers that took the bold step of faith 
to tell the Gentiles at Antioch about Jesus. Who are the believers that plant, basically planted this church, this very influential church, the best sending church in the New Testament, the church that would launch the apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time? Who are the believers that started this church? And the answer is, we don't know. Just some people that went there, some no-name Christians. And a lot of the best work in the history of Christianity has been done by no-name Christians. This is why it's important that we be faithful to God and try to please him alone. Let him decide how much honor we're going to get here in this life, knowing that he will tell us who these were and all the other no-name Christians were. He'll tell us who they are at that final judgment when we stand before him and are rewarded. It's the only judgment that counts anyway. So some no-name Christians start telling Gentiles, and things really start to roll here in Antioch. The power of the Lord was with them. A large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. People are becoming Christians. They're putting their faith in Jesus. They're, they're being forgiven. They're being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Their lives are being filled with joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit. Well, the church of Jerusalem hears this is happening. They're like, there's all these Gentiles up in Antioch? This must have been after the Cornelius incident that we read about. And they sent a guy named Barnabas to Antioch. Now, his real name was Joseph. And he was from the island of Cyprus, a place we're going to go later tonight. Uh, but they called him Barnabas, Bar, which means son of, and Nabus, which I guess means encouragement. So he's Barnabas, Barnabas, becomes an important player in the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. He's known as a, uh, just a super encouraging guy. Trusted, respected, generous, just a good dude. And so they decide to send him up there. And it's a good thing that they did. They sent him because he was such a good Christian worker. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy. He wasn't so proud that he saw God working in somebody else's ministry and he felt competitive or critical. No, good encouragers are pretty easily pleased and they're humble. They saw the good. There's probably bad things happening too, but he was just so happy to see God working. He was full of joy. And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. He knew as well as anybody that it's one thing to become a Christian. It's another thing to persevere without wavering. And so he's encouraging these people, stick it out. Don't give up. Things get hard. It's inevitable. Opposition will even arise. And he says, hang in there. Maybe that's the message some of us need tonight who are wavering. Hang in there. Stay true to the Lord. I tell you with Barnabas. It says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. So a lot of people were coming to Christ. Now it says, many people were brought to the Lord. This movement is growing. In fact, so many people that Barnabas decides he needs to bring in reinforcements. And he goes not back to Jerusalem, but somewhere else. It says in verse 25, he went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. Yes, Saul. Remember Saul? You've got Antioch here, and Tarsus is another 100 miles up around the corner on this major road up into what they called Asia, what we call Turkey today. And so Barnabas, he had played an influential role in Saul's life. When Saul came to Jerusalem, nobody trusted him. He was a former persecutor of the church, and yet he believed Saul was genuine. 
He got him, he introduced him to the other guys, he gained his acceptance. He saw something there in Saul. And, you know, the, the last we saw of Saul, it was 37 AD. This is the year, of, this year here, this is probably 44 or 45 AD. So it's been almost a decade since we've heard anything from this guy. What was Saul doing for the past seven or eight or nine years up in Tarsus? Well, one thing he's been doing is serving God. He hasn't just been sitting there wasting away, wondering when somebody's going to give me some kind of leadership position, wondering when he's going to get some recognition. No. He tells us in Galatians 1, he says, I went up into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia. So Syria is where Antioch was. And then around the corner, you can see Cilicia. That's that southeastern part of Turkey. He says, still, the churches in Christ in Judea, that's around Jerusalem, they didn't even know me personally. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God. So he's going around telling people about Jesus. There's evidence here and later in Acts that he was leading people to Christ, that he was planting churches that are still there at the beginning of the second missionary journey. And so he's up there. He's not waiting around, but he jumps right in, just like we saw at every other point in his life so far. So he's serving God. He's also suffering. You wonder what Saul's family thought when he got back from Jerusalem after being gone for several years. He, the great Pharisee, the respected Sanhedrin member of the finest education that his family paid a lot of money for. And here he comes back. He's thrown it all away to chase after some crucified Messiah, this criminal. You can, you can imagine his family wasn't too happy about the direction that his life or his career was taking. What about his family? What about his wife? There's no way he could have gotten that far in Judaism without getting married. They were, they were married by the time they were 20. He was, he was 30 by the time he became a Christian, in his 30s. And so, yet 1 Corinthians 7 says, by the second missionary journey, he didn't have a wife. And so did she just pass away or did she reject him when she saw his apostasy from the true faith that they'd been raised, raised in, in, in her opinion? Did she reject him and leave him? I don't know. What about 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, 24, where, where Paul says, five times I got 39 lashes from the Jews. None of those are recorded in Acts. Is it possible that some of those occurred up here? during these lost years, up in and around Tarsus, I think there's a good chance that they did. You know, Paul says in Philippians 3.8, he says, I've suffered the loss of all things for the sake of following Jesus. But you know what he says? I don't regret any of it. I traded garbage for treasure. And so he was suffering up there in obscurity. Maybe he thought he'd been forgotten about by the other believers. Maybe he thought, this is how my life is going to end. He had no idea that along is going to come Barnabas when, when, when Saul is in his mid-40s and he's just about to begin the great adventure of his life and become one of the most famous people of all time. He was also growing. You can bet. If you hang in there through suffering, you're going to grow. If you don't, you're not. But he hung in there. You can, just, you can just imagine him growing in his relationship with God, growing in humility, bearing the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, he tells of one instance 
something amazing that happened to him during these years in Tarsus. He says, 14 years ago, I was caught up into heaven. I don't even know if, if it was bodily or just a vision, but I was there and I saw it. I'm not even allowed to talk about it. So that's all I'll say about it. <laughs> and yet you see the eternal perspective that he had that would have been forged through his suffering, but also through experiences like this with God. Yeah, serving, suffering, and growing. Maybe, maybe some things that some of us in this room are doing right now. And Barnabas went up to look for him. So I don't know if he was like out doing some Christian ministry or what, but eventually he found him and he, he convinces him to come back to Antioch with him because of the way the spirit is moving there. He had work for him to do. And it says both of them stay there with the church for a full year teaching large, large crowds of people. This is sometime around 46 AD. Now, this would have been kind of a strange experience for some of these Christians at Antioch because some of them had been in Jerusalem. The last they'd seen of Saul, he's standing there at the death of Stephen, making sure that he was good and dead. They saw him going around, persecuting, even killing, maybe some of their friends. Imagine that first week you show up for CT and Barnabas is like, we got a new teacher here all the way from Tarsus. Saul! And yet here, we, here he was, forgiven, serving God zealously, serving alongside of Barnabas there. You know, Barnabas must have thought this was pretty important to go and get Saul, to travel 100 miles, to track him down, to talk him into coming back. He was a busy guy. Yet he, he went for it because apparently he felt like it was worth it to get this leader up into a position where he felt like God had called him. And also to go and get a guy who there was a, a decent chance that he's more gifted than me and may even pass me up, which is exactly what's going to happen. But for a guy like Barnabas, he doesn't care. He just wants to serve the Lord. He's a good man. It was at Antioch the believers were first called Christians. Yeah, they were called disciples, or they talked about following the way, which is different than there's a, a sect, uh, a cult called the way today. It's, it's not that. This is just the name they had for themselves in Acts. The, the term Christian looks like it was actually kind of a derogatory term. You only see it on the lips of non-believers. You don't see Christians calling themselves that in the New Testament. Also, uh, first century historians also use the word Christian in a, a negative way. It just meant the Christ people. Like in the Gospels, you see the Herodians, they were like Herod's fan club, you know? And so the Christians, it was like, like Jesus' fan club. They're always talking about him. I guess we still use it today, right? It's not till the second century we see Christians actually using this about themselves, positively. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus, a prophet who we'll see again later in Acts, stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. Yeah, it's not that like a drought was going to hit the whole Roman world. No, specifically, Egypt was going to have problems. But Egypt was the breadbasket for the rest of the Roman Empire. Yeah, in 45 AD, we learned that the Nile hit the highest level it had in like 100 years. It was like a 100-year flood. And uh, wiped out most of the grain crop. Prices started shooting up. These sorts of things especially would affect the poor. And so, and it says this was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius, one of the many places where something Luke mentions fits right in with our Roman secular history. 
So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. And so they give money knowing ahead of time this is happening. They save up some money and send it down to Jerusalem when the famine hits. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So they gave their money to Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them on this long journey down to Jerusalem. Well, Galatians 2 actually tells us about this visit. This is where we start to see some interlocking of the other writings in the New Testament. Here's what Paul writes in Galatians 2. He says, after 14 years, that's after his conversion, which was 33 or 34 AD, his conversion. So we're talking 46-ish, 47 AD, something like that. It would round off part of a year, counted as a year, you know. So he says, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also, a guy who shows up later in the New Testament. I went in a response to a revelation. Well, what revelation is that? That's the prophecy from Agabus, right? And he says, I met privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. He's like, not like I was like really worried about what other people think. No, got my gospel straight from Jesus. But I, I still wanted to talk with them and just let them know what I was talking about and kind of compare notes. And he says, as for those who were held in high esteem, they added nothing to my message. In fact, he says, Titus, everybody knew he's a Greek. They didn't even make him get circumcised. They were fine with that. James, Cephas, who's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me, me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. Some kind of a handshake or a yeah, you know. <laughs> they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So we'll focus more on the Jews. You focus on the, the non-Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, which that's the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. I mean, that's why he was in Jerusalem, right? He had money for the poor. So it's cool to see it fitting in with the rest of the New Testament letters as well. Well, Acts chapter 12, we studied last week. That's actually an, an instant earlier in the 40s AD where Peter's imprisoned, escapes, leaves town. He's back by the time Paul and them get there, I guess. But we'll pick up where we left off last week in Acts 12, 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, they returned, taking John Mark with them. Right. So John Mark's another guy who's going to show up in Acts and the rest of the New Testament. And it says in Acts 13 that among the prophets and teachers of the church of Antioch of Syria, he's going to give a list of five people who were leaders there in the church. The first was Barnabas. We already know about him. The second was a guy named Simeon called the black man. <laughs> All right. Some of our Bibles just, lit, just take the Latin loan word that's in the New Testament, Niger. That's what that means, the black man. Um, guy, I guess, yeah. Not, he's not the Simon from Cyrene, though, that carried the cross for Jesus. That guy spelled his name differently. So he's a leader here, though. We, we, what we see is a multicultural church here at Antioch. Lucius, who was from Cyrene, from Africa, not the Luke who wrote this. Some people say that. There's, there's no reason to think it is, and there's good reason to think it's not. Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. They was like best buddies with Herod growing up. It's funny, you hear all these 
these inside accounts from the Herod household in the Gospel of Luke, and even some here. Um, we saw Herod last chapter, right? What, what a different path. You know, Acts 12 ends with Herod dying after trying to persecute the church. And then his buddy is a Christian leader up in Antioch. So they're winning some big fish here in Antioch. You know, some Christians, they go out to tell people about Jesus, and they're like, I'm going to find the weirdest person I can, I can locate, and I'm going to tell them. Okay, weird people need Jesus. <laughs> but guys like Manan do too, okay? Finally, Saul. He's the fifth one there, and we know him too, right? So these five guys, these were like the, this was like the leadership team here in Antioch. And it says, one day as these men were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. And he said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. I don't know if it was an audible voice. I don't know if it was an impression that this whole team, it looks like maybe even the whole church might have been present for this. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So they're going to leave Antioch of Syria. A couple observations here. One is that God sent these guys. You see that throughout this. The Holy Spirit said, I have called them, sent out by the Holy Spirit. It's clear this is a move from God, just like all the other moves he's made in Acts, to get his message out, 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 further. Tell people about Jesus, the good news, forgiveness, the gospel. But we also see the church also sent them. Look at that. The leaders there, after fasting and prayer, sent them on their way. But then the next verse it says, and so they were sent by the Holy Spirit. So which one was it, the church or the Spirit? The answer is yes. (laughs) It was both. They heard the call. A lot of modern mission sending, it's very autonomous. Some person just feels called by God to go be a missionary, and they just inform everybody else. This was the other way. God told the church, and they, they confirmed it right there with Saul and Barnabas. They also released some of their best. It said they released them and sent them on their way. And so I'm sure there was some sort of a process where they didn't just drop their ministry. And yet at the same time, these these were big names. And yet they sent them anyway. They sent them out. They worked with them to try to make make it possible for them to go because this is what God wanted. Also, Paul and Barnabas were willing to go into the unknown. Yes, he just says, dedicate them for the special work to which I have called them. He didn't spell it out for them ahead of time. He said, go. Kind of like when God called Abraham in the Old Testament, go. I'll I'll explain more as we go along the way there. They were willing to go out into the unknown with the goal of planting churches. Just like we had here at Antioch of Syria, they said, be nice to see some more of those all over the place so people can hear about Jesus. And at this point, we, I want to stop and just say a couple of words about this whole notion of church planting, of missionary sending. Missionaries have a pretty bad rap among postmodernists. And some of that's pretty justified, actually. There's been a lot of tragedies in the name of Christian missions. But the way that uh, the, the postmodernists view this whole area is this. I'll go a little, little diagram, Okay. So you got this one culture here, and they've kind of got their story, right, 
of the way things are. They got their own religion. They got their own gods. They got their own version of things. And then you got other cultures, and they've got their own story. And so every culture is it's just beautiful and pristine, and they've got their version. And, you know, these different cultures, we should just, you know... You, this culture A can't go to culture B and tell them they're wrong. And who are you, you colonialist, to go in and squash out this, this people's beautiful history with your missionaries? And what, the way they view missions is you got one group and they're like, wait, this isn't just a story for us. This is the story for everybody. And we have to make people adhere to our story. And so what they do is they go out and they mash down all these local cultures and they destroy them and they drive tanks and bulldozers and they, they ruin their history and they make them be like us and dress like us and talk like us. Colonizers. Okay, there's, there's definitely been messed up stuff in the name of missions. And from this perspective, I would agree, this would be wrong for this culture to just hoist my personal preference on that culture. It's like you get the sword out and you're like, you will like chocolate ice cream or you will die. Because <laughs> I like chocolate ice cream. Well, the Bible, the way the Bible presents it, it's very different. So you got all these different cultures. You see this from the very beginning of the book of Genesis. Scattered. There's all these nations. But what scripture says is there's a God. An infinite... <laughs> personal God <laughs> who speaks, who knows the way things are, who is truth. And what, what we read is that God, what if, what if there was really a God and he had actually revealed the story, the way things actually are? Well, if that was the case and one culture found out about it, would you almost, and, and, and that God said, go, go tell the other cultures, the other people that haven't heard, and even people within your culture who haven't heard, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't that make a lot more sense to go out and tell? Especially if this was the way of salvation. And in our Bibles, what we have is reason to think, good, good solid, objective evidence that this is actually from God. We've got a, a free book afterward that you can, you can read if you want to read, look more into evidence for that. But this is, this is the biblical picture. And so it's very different than one culture putting their preferences on another. It's God has revealed himself in history, and he wants everybody to know. And so that's different. And so who, who, are, we to, who are we to disobey God? Now, some will object, and they'll be like, there is no objective truth that applies to all people. Which I would say, is that objectively true, what you just said? Are you applying that to all people? What if another culture says there is objective truth that applies to all? Are you going to tell them they're wrong? Because if so, then your worldview is contradicting itself. You're saying there is no objective truth, and yet that is an objective truth. And so it can't be true. And when your worldview starts doing that, its main tenets rule out its main tenets, you need to rethink your worldview. Or they'll be like, you can't tell another culture that they're wrong. Really? What if a culture believes they've got 
revelation from the one true God. Are you going to tell them they're wrong? And if so, you're contradicting your one rule. Also, are you really saying we can't look over at another culture practicing something savage and inhumane and be like, well, who am I to say that Nazi Germany was wrong in the 1930s? Who am I to say that Stalin was wrong when he exterminated all those people? I'm just, I mean, this is my culture, that's their culture. We can't even communicate with each other. No, that same person will will be the, the first to cry out that this is inhumane and we need to do something about it. And so that's the problem with this postmodern worldview is it just doesn't hold together. And uh, they've, got, they've got assumptions that contradict their main tenets. And so this is what's happening here. You know, properly understood, Christian missions is nothing more than going out and sharing the good news about Jesus. And I'd like to add, Christian missions have done a ton of good for the world. Hospitals, education, even things that secular non-Christians would say are objectively good. Moving in, writing a Bible in their language so that their language is preserved. Teaching people. There's been a lot of good that's come out of modern missions. Billions of dollars outpoured for the sake of spreading God's love around the world. And that's what's happening here at Antioch. God is sending them out to tell more people about Jesus. So they went down the 16 miles to the seaport of Seleucia, where the Roman fleet was usually stationed. You could usually get a, catch a ride there anywhere in the Mediterranean. And they set sail for the island of Cyprus. I got a map after this verse. They're in the town of Salamis, which is the inventor of salami. That's not true. They went to the Jewish synagogues. There must have been a lot of Jews there, multiple synagogues, and they preached the word of God. And John Mark went with them as their assistant. So he tags along. Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. So you can see Cyprus, that big island right there in the middle of the Mediterranean, in the middle of our map. They left Antioch and they went west. They landed at the eastern port of Salamis. And they preached there. And then they moved through the island. It's not clear what route they, they took, but they made several stops along the way telling people about Jesus. And they end up on the west coast in a place called Paphos. They traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So we got Barnabas, son of encouragement. We got Bar-Jesus, son of salvation, is what that means. And yet he was a Jewish, some kind of blend of Judaism and sorcery. He was a false prophet but his name was Son of Salvation. He had attached himself like a parasite to the governor Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. And again, we see Luke interfacing with Roman history. This was viewed as a, as a Luke was viewed as a laughingstock 100 years ago until Sir William Ramsey started his archeological quest across the Mediterranean. Not to show the Bible is right, he was not a believer. He became one, though, with what he found. He ended up concluding Luke is a historian of the first rank. Here's what Clinton Arnold says about Sergius Paulus. A Latin inscription discovered in Rome makes explicit mention of this man. His full name is Lucius Sergius Paulus. And he's listed with four other men as a director of water management for the Tiber River in Rome. 
It explicitly mentioned that he served in this capacity during the reign of Claudius, and it's got to be in the first six years of Claudius' reign because the title it uses for Claudius. And so we know in 41 to 47 AD, and by the way, this is about 47 AD, that Paul is showing up on Cyprus and meeting this guy right here. The dating suggests that Sergius Paulus served as proconsul of Cyprus either just before his position in Rome or just after. That's cool. He was an intelligent man, so he wasn't an idiot. Seems like a, a, a pretty sharp, powerful dude. And it says the governor, he heard they were there, and he invites Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. And so this guy's not, he's not a God-fearer like Cornelius was. He'd spent his life going to synagogue. This is like pure pagan. And he wants to hear what these guys have to say. But Elymas, the sorcerer, that's Bar-Jesus, as his name means in Greek, interfered. And he urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. I think he's worried about job security here. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. But Saul, also known as Paul, and for the rest of the book, he's going to be called Paul. That's not like the name he got when he became a Christian. No, that would have been his, his Roman name from birth. He would, have, he would have grown up going by Paulos or Saul. And from here on, he's going to be called Paul. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. And he said, you son of the devil. You're no son of salvation. You're son of Satan. You're full of every sort of deceit and fraud. You're the enemy of all that's good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time, in case you wonder what blind meant. <laughs> Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes. He began groping around, begging for someone to take him by the hand and lead him. Well, it was only for a time, I guess. It's actually almost identical to what happened to Paul at his conversion. So Paul had been through all this. Maybe he's hoping that it'll have the same effect on Bar-Jesus. Well, when the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer. <laughs> For he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. So the miracle affirmed the teaching. And that's what Luke really draws attention to here. Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. From Paphos to Perga of Pamphylia. Now, why did they go there next? First of all, why did they go to Cyprus in the first place? Was it just like, we'll just throw a dart at a map and the Holy Spirit will tell us where to go? Or was it Barnabas grew up there had spent a lot of his life there, had contacts, knew the area, and they thought that would be a place where it made sense to go first. Perga is the port up here in southern Turkey, right in the middle. You know, Paul had spent his life, he grew up in southeast Turkey. But they're going from Paphos, they're landing at Perga, and they're going up to a place called Antioch of Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch. You know, Paul says in Galatians, it was because of an illness that I first came to you. I don't know. Some people think maybe he got like malaria down there. 
and he had to go way up high into the mountains to get better. I don't know. But one thing that's pretty interesting from archaeology is at Pisidian Antioch, they found this inscription, which is an inscription referring to the son of Sergius Paulus, who was an important government official there. And so Luke, not only does he get Sergius Paulus right in Cyprus, he gets his son right too, and it makes sense why they would go from there up north. Maybe, maybe Sergius Paulus even wrote some letters of recommendation for them, gave them some, some tips on where to go. They had an inn with another place, and they went there. Well, this, uh, this landing here at Perga, you got to see what this looks like. Here's the ruins of ancient Perga. Look at those mountains in the distance there, the Taurus Mountains. And Paul says, all right, guys, we're going 100 miles that way. Straight up over those mountains. Anybody, have you ever hiked a mile in a mountain? <laughs> it's hard. And at this point, we see that this is too much for John Mark. And it says, he left them and returned to Jerusalem. Doesn't say why. It comes up later in Acts. Paul viewed it as desertion. John Mark went halfway, felt like, I'm done, I didn't sign up for this, and he went back home. But Paul and Barnabas kept on moving. They traveled inland. Notice here, it's Paul and Barnabas traveled inland. Oh, did you notice the previous slide? Paul and his companions. Barnabas doesn't even get mentioned here. Paul is now first in this missionary duo. They traveled to Antioch of Pisidia. So they make the 100-mile journey. It would have taken many days. If Paul was sick, it would have taken even longer. And here you see, you can see, this is Antioch of Pisidia. You can see the mountains there in the distance. They would have crossed to get here. And on the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue for the services. They, went, they always go to the synagogue first to talk to the Jews. After the usual readings from the books of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. Yeah, uh, Paul might have had some sort of robe or some sort of distinction that marked that he was a learned rabbi from Jerusalem. And so they thought they would give this learned traveling rabbi a chance to speak to them all. Well, Paul says, love you insist. <laughs> he stood up and he lifted his hand to quiet them, and he started speaking. And what we have here, and what I'm going to read for you, is a, a condensed version of this talk that he gave. It's the first lengthy talk we have from Paul. We're going to see many more of them. And uh, I don't, you know, we can read it in 60 seconds or whatever. He would have spoken a lot longer than this. But you're going to recognize this actually looks kind of familiar to the speech of Stephen and the speech of Peter. And this is how Paul preached the gospel to the Jews. So let's go ahead and read. Men of Israel and you God-fearing Gentiles. So usually you just ignore the Gentiles that were there. But Paul explicitly reaches out to them in this speech. Listen to me. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Okay, so he's way back here in 1600 BC, 1700 BC. He's going back through the history of the nation of Israel. How God worked in the Old Testament. He's jumped back to the second, really the first book in the Bible. Genesis and early Exodus. With a powerful arm, he led them out of their slavery through Moses. 
He put up with them through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. Yes, he gave them the land of Israel. All this, he says, took about 450 years, taking us right up to around 1400 B.C. After that, God gave them judges for several hundred years to rule until the time of Samuel the prophet, about 1050 B.C. He says, then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, man of the tribe of Benjamin, my namesake. You have Saul the Benjamite giving this speech about Saul the king, who was also from Benjamin. And he says, Saul, King Saul reigned for 40 years. But God removed him and replaced him with David, King David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. And he says, it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised Savior of Israel. So he starts to bring up the prophets, the prophecies, a prophecy made to David that one of his sons would sit on a throne forever, the son of David, referred to later as the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, the Christ. The prophets predicted it. Before that Savior came, John the Baptist preached that all the people of Israel needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. You know, John was so famous. He was like a rock star. He was heard of all the way up here in Turkey. And he says, remember John? John was sent from God to tell people about Jesus. If you believe John, believe in Jesus. As John was finishing his ministry, he asked, wait, you think I'm the Messiah? No. No, I'm not. He's coming soon. Prophecy from John, and I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers, sons of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, let's not forget you guys. This message of salvation has been sent to us. We are the privileged ones. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders, they didn't recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. I wonder if he went into some of those prophecies right here from the Old Testament. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, oh, they fulfilled the prophet's words. I wonder if he went into some more of those prophecies. The words that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they'd done all that the prophecies said about him on the cross, they took him down from the cross. They put him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. That's the good news. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who'd gone with him from Galilee down to Jerusalem. They're witnesses now to the people of Israel, his witnesses. And now we, all the way from Israel, are here to bring you this good news. This promise was made to our ancestors. And God has now fulfilled those prophecies, those promises for us by raising Jesus. Look, the second Psalm, here's what it says about Jesus. You're my son, today I've become your father. He's quoting the Old Testament. God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. No, he said, I'll give you the sacred blessings I promised to David, quoting the prophets again. Another Psalm, oh, Psalm 16, he says, 
You won't allow your holy one to rot in the grave. But he says, it can't be a reference to David because David died. He, he was buried with his ancestors. His, his body did decay. And we know the scriptures can't be broken. So it was a reference to someone else. Someone whom God raised, whose body did not decay, which can only be Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, and here's his, here's his conclusion. We're here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, what we see here is the heart of Paul's gospel, the heart of the gospel, what we see over and over again in his letters. And it starts with Jesus. And he says, it's only through Jesus that there is forgiveness for your sins. That's the only way to get rid of that guilt you have before God. How do you get it? By good works? No, it's everyone who believes in him. It's by faith alone. And that'll get you what? Declared right with God, justified, made right, just as if you never even sinned because your sins are transferred unto Jesus and he suffers for them. And he says, finally, that's something the law of Moses could never do. It's not by works. It's not by obeying the law. It's only by trusting in Jesus. And he says, that's what we're here to proclaim to you. That's what God sent them all across the Roman Empire to tell people about. That's what God sent those no-name Christians to, Jerusalem, to Antioch to tell them about. And that, over the last 2,000 years, through a lot of no-name Christians, that message has come right down here to this room tonight. And I stand here as a no-name Christian to tell you this, that it's through Jesus you can have forgiveness for your sins. That's available to everybody who believes in him. You can be declared right with God, and that's something that by being good and obeying the law, you can never accomplish. So why not here tonight fall on your knees before Jesus and put your trust in him and receive this forgiveness? There we go. Part one of that first missionary journey. Thanks for how you work through people, Lord. Thanks for this message, this good news. It fits into any culture. God, we, we pray that we would be faithful recipients and carriers of that good news, Lord. That we'd share that with other people. And uh, I, I just I thank you so much that, that Jesus has provided forgiveness, God. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.